Welcome, welcome, welcome to Real Job Talk. I'm Kat Troyer. I'm Liz Bronson. And today we are joined by both of our old boss, J. Mike Smith, who is coming to us from San Francisco. Mike. Hey guys, good to be with you. Welcome, welcome, J. Mike. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to reconnect with you. Please tell our audience about yourself. Let's see, apart uh, being lucky enough to have both of you working with me, uh, I work as an executive coach working with uh, execs, leadership teams, and a bunch of startup teams. So I've got experience working with folks when they're just forming, as well as people who have been working together for a long time. So I've been doing this for a bunch of years. Um, I just pulled out of a rotation of five years, taking a company from three to 350 people. So I'm back to my old work um, and looking forward to it. Awesome. Well, we are, uh, we're super lucky to have you with us tonight, Mike, and to talk about a subject that we all deal with every day, teams. Uh, we want to learn from Mike about how to build good teams, what makes a good team, and how we can make sure that we build effective teams for projects. Mike has a process that he uses when he first works with the team, and we're hoping that he will maybe share a little bit of that with us today as well. Yeah. So to get us started, what are the elements of building a strong team? The first thing I think you think about is, is it a team? So when I think about a team, I think about people that have common dependencies or is it a work group? Because the way you would approach a work group is going to be, in my experience, very different than a team. So first cut, is it a team or is it a work group? So assuming that you have common dependencies, in other words, there are things that I do that impacts, in this case, Liz or impacts Kat, um, the first thing I think you start with is, what are you trying to do? So there is a process I run teams through, I call it road trip, because if we were all going to go someplace, the first thing we'd figure out is, where do you want to go? So the first thing to do is really, what's the destination? And so in a lot of the, a lot of the research material uh, that you'll come across, you talk about really vision um, as part of the orientation. So when you have a team, what do you, what is it that you're what is it that you're trying to do? That's an item, by the way, that you know you just can't repeat often enough. Um, we're all adults. We're all busy. We're all doing things. Um, I think at least a couple of us have younger kids, and uh, people forget what it is they're doing. So mm-hmm. that destination becomes really important. So tell us what's the difference in your mind between a work group and a team. Yeah, so a work group could be people who work together, but there's no interdependency. Mm. So, for example, um, I might be doing Salesforce cat forecasting, and I might work with somebody who does financial planning and analysis, but their work really doesn't necessarily inform mine and, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the best example I think we have of a team probably right now is the women's uh, soccer team that's playing in, in France. You know, what one person does directly informs and directly impacts somebody else. You know, is the concession guy part of that team? You know, probably not. Team manager might be, uh, you know, the physical therapist, all that stuff may be part, but it's really the uh, women on the field that's really the team. Got it. So, Mike, what are the elements to build a strong team? So, in in the process I use, road trip, um, it's... It's four steps with some rapport building. So the four steps 
are figuring out the destination, figuring out what I call milestones. So milestones are really, what are the things we need to deliver? Um, figuring out uh, sort of who does what. So if, again, using the metaphor of a road trip, one of us would be driving, probably not two of us. One of us might be doing uh, navigating. One of us might be in charge of snacks. Maybe one of us is doing something else. So kind of roles and responsibilities. Um, and the last piece is really what I call rules of the road. How do we want to play together? So if you've got a team of people that know each other, that's pretty straightforward. If you've got a, a team of people that don't know each other, part of what you need to build in is what I think of and what the, there's a outfit out of the Presidio called uh, uh, the Grove Institute. They've done a lot of work with teams. It's really orientation. You know, and that's so that you start to understand, you know, the background of people, you know, their skills, their abilities, so you can start to leverage off who does stuff best. Um, but it does fundamentally starts with what's the purpose? What what are we, what's this team for? And then figuring out how do you build a set of really working arrangements between people so that you can get the best out of the team. I'm a huge fan of teams. I think uh, I'm actually even a bigger fan of what I I think of as huge diverse teams. A lot of research that says diverse teams. So think of not just the obvious stuff like gender or race, but uh, background, experiences, perspectives, where they grew up, how they grew up. Um, Those are the the organizations that really can power power, uh, a company. So it sounds ideal, but how... You know, if I'm sit, I'm sitting here and I'm an executive, let's say, and I have a big project to do, okay. how do I go about putting together this team? And how do I choose my people? And and how do I know what I need before I have my roadmap? Yeah, part of what tends to happen. So let's you know, I work with a lot of uh, Series A, some cases pre-Series A teams. Some of it is figuring out, you know, what what do you likely need in terms of a role? So if I think about, you know, I spend a lot of time in biotech and tech, you know, you, you probably have somebody that needs to understand engineering. You may need to have somebody who understands some design aspects if you're creating software programs. You probably need to have somebody who understands frequently how to raise money. You know, there, there tend to be some typical types of players. Frequently, again, you, you talked about being an exec. If you're at a startup, you probably don't have a fully assembled team. So you start to think about kind of what do we need at first and then what, what do we need to build on? I've worked with a fair number of biotech virtual teams. Those roles are even more delineated. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's figuring out what, what do you need to make the team move forward? So that's that's a first piece, but 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 again, I think Liz, you start with what are we trying to do, and that what are we trying to do starts to inform what the initial team looks like. Mm-hmm. For people who work in established organizations, you know, they they frequently have the ability to pull a team together, and so they're they're resourced. Uh, you know, it's kind of luxurious. You know, you need somebody to do something so you can go out and, and pull those folks together. True. I, you know, it's, I work with a lot of similar size startups as well. And I find also when building that initial team and even the team after the initial team, it's all about hiring multitaskers. So engineer who's okay with writing a blog post or 
the operational person who can go meet with a customer. And so you hire these multifunctional teams. And I and those initial teams I find are often, and I'd love to hear from both of you if you see the same, you know, it's the friends and family. And I'm usually the person that's brought in once the friends and family are exhausted and it's time to hire, you know, the dreaded stranger. And then, you know, they bring me in to try to help with that. I think that's the common way that it's done. Uh, I don't know that it's always the best way. You know, what tends to happen is we access our own networks. They are frequently people like us. Mm-hmm. And so what happens, uh, and the reason why you probably get called in, mm-hmm. is they go to that kind of edge of their network and they everybody knows the same people. And so mm-hmm. how you bring in other people is something that, you know, if you're forming a team, you, know, you actually should think about. Um, the other thing that happens real early, and I think Reed Hoffman was talking about this this week in, in a tweet I saw, is, you know, you're going to establish whatever that the culture of the team is pretty early by the folks you bring in first. Mm-hmm. And so looking not just for uh, domain expertise or domain expertises, but also are these folks that are going to be appropriate for the type of team I want to build? Um, and, you know, you can go wrong pretty early with teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, and unfortunately, if and I happen to think that speed is a competitive advantage, if you go wrong early, you spend a lot of time doing cleanup. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about what are the characteristics of the folks you want, besides just domain expertise, I think is pretty critical. Mm-hmm. So to your point, Liz, you know, are these people who are going to take out the garbage, write the blog post, and oh, by the way, code? Or are <laughs> yeah. they somebody who says, you know, that's not my job. You know, I want somebody else to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's my team. You know, they're probably not not on the team. Agreed. I was curious about, you know, do you do upfront culture work with with your startups? Do you, do you talk about that at, at the beginning before you put together a team so you know kind of what you're... Well, I think what you do is, you you, you know, you start with, again, this idea of purpose, this destination. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the process, um, you know, in, in the roadmap process I use, road trip process... Really, the how do we want to work together is the last element. But I think what you do is you, you because uh, I think many people, not everybody, but many people are purpose-driven. Purpose-driven to me is the hook to get somebody in interested. And I think what happens is we're all creatures of situational context. You know, nobody has to tell me to be quiet in a church. Um, I know there are people that, that have that experience, but not most people. So part of the culture, I think, is how do we choose to work together, which for me is sort of step four, rules of the, rules of the road. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're doing that early with a team, you, you will find folks deselecting if that's not how they want to work. Um, because if, in fact, to, to Liz's example, it's coding and writing the blog and someone says, you know, I, I just don't believe in that. It's better to swap that person out early than to swap them out late. So much better to do that as early as possible. You know, and the thing, the, the, the reality is uh, not everybody is a great teammate. Mm-hmm. And, uh, y- you know, again, I, I think there's a lot of places for everybody. But if you're working with a team and you need the synergy of a team, somebody who's not a good team player should probably not be on the team. Mm-hmm. And I would put it like an asterisk with that and say, not everybody is a great team player for every team. Correct. Someone can be a great team player, on one team and like 
terrible on another one. And so it's, it's about finding the team that's going to gel together. And that's kind of hard to tell right away. So what would you say are some pitfalls to look for when you're putting together this team at the beginning of either a company or project or what have you? Yeah, well, I mean, you do a fair amount of search work. And so part of it is, you know, you, you do a little bit of vetting. Uh, how has this person worked with other teams? You know, what were the pluses? What were the things that people would change? And and it is a little bit like, you know, assembling uh, a nice dinner party. You want people to, you know, to have a good time. You know? uh, and so, you know, I've been on teams where people who were prickly were not particularly best on that team. And so if you if you have vetted people properly, you know, you find that stuff out early. I'm not opposed to excusing somebody from a team where you say, you're great, but your talents really aren't going to be fully leveraged in this team. Um, you know, it's, it's not a good fit for you. And if we think about all the, you know, I mean, sports teams to me, particularly soccer or basketball are great examples. There are players who are good players on some teams, not so great players on others. Um, so it is a little bit like the dinner party assembly. Yeah. It's all about making sure you've got a good fit for, yeah. for all of the members, right? Yeah. For sure. And it's interesting to see how teams come together. I just read the book, The Ideal Team Player, which spells it out so simply that it's like obvious, but yet what they do is they set their values and then they share it with every candidate. These are our values. This is what we expect. If you don't want to be here, leave. And they even say that to the current employees. And I love having values like up on the wall or part of the interview. They should be central to whatever interview process it is. Again, so people can self-select and say, you know what? That's not the team for me. Yeah. You know, one of the things we did at Atara Bio is the values really came out of, in part, of the purpose. So in our case, it was getting, you know, underserved patients, medical uh, care, medical products quickly. And so when we think about doing that, the way we thought about the organization was work in teams, roll your sleeves up, anti-silo, sense of urgency, all those things. So those become values that are driven by the purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, if I were in a different business, I would suspect my values would be, you know, some similarities, but some differences too. Because, you know, in some organizations, sense of urgency is less important. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not critical to purpose. And, you know, if I'm in healthcare, you know, people are dying. So being able to move quickly is there. But I agree with you. It's it's being very proscriptive with those values. And something I said earlier is also having that as an iterative conversation. You know, it's not a one pass. I mean, I, I have a, a 16-year-old who's the apple of my eye. But let me tell you, we talk about things not just once. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. right. Got to stick, right? Um, and Liz, you probably have that with your kids, Never. Um, where you just, you know, it's a, it's an ongoing conversation. And consistency. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, communication is just so important and saying something once isn't enough. It needs yeah. to be more than once and in multiple ways. You know, some people read better than they hear. I mean, you just need to kind of put it out there in a more of an orchestrated communication plan as opposed to just saying something once. Yeah, I, I do think that one of the things, and this has been my experience, if you're intentional about how you form teams, how you nurture the teams, and how you move, they can be pretty incredible. I mean, one of the teams I work with, we had a longtime FDA official who started calling it the little Fabergé egg team. 
because he'd never worked with a group of folks who had worked so well together. And he said, you guys are lucky. It's like having a Fabergé egg. But that's the mentality you can construct if you, if you do it right. And it helps, by the way, you know, not to pitch the work that we all do. It helps mm-hmm. to have somebody helping you, um, somebody who really is going to be focused on spotting how the team forms. And, you know, ideally what you're trying to do is get a good foundation and a quick liftoff, I think, with most teams. Okay, so now we've got, let's say we, we've, we've done the front-end work, we've, we've made the decisions, so we've got a strong team in place. What are your suggestions for the leader of the team to get things off to a good start? And how do you pick the leader of the team? It may not always be the manager, right? You know, I think it really depends. I mean, there's, there are organizations that have what are called leaderless teams. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a woman uh, out of USC, uh, Susan Mormon, M-O-H-R-M-A-N, who's done a lot of research on leaderless teams. There is nobody on point or the point may be rotating. But teams in part, going back to what I said earlier, start with a clear sense of what's the purpose and what are the milestones. I mean, there's a, you know, it's it's overused, but there's a great Jack, you know, Kennedy line. You know, his challenge to NASA was go to the moon within 10 years, bring a man, should have been bring a person, bring a man uh, to the moon and back safely. You know, that was, that's, that's purpose. And it gives the team, you know, pretty good boundaries on what's expected. Um, teams do well with direction. They don't do well with, you know, a lot of people meddling uh, externals about how the team works uh, unless it's part of the boundary setting. So things like budget, time, those are all sort of to me, milestones. So part of whoever the leader is, or if it's a, a leaderless team is, being clear about what, what's expected of the team and then what decision rights you have to, to achieve that. And what about roles? So whether it's a leader team or a leaderless yeah. team, how do you suggest assigning roles in the most effective way? Well, so, so two cases. So if in fact, you know, you have a team that has some uh, certain domain expertise. So I might have, a, if I'm in the biopharma world, I might have somebody who has manufacturing expertise, sometimes called CMC. I might have somebody who has regulatory expertise. Mm-hmm. I might have somebody who's a medical doctor who's playing that role. I might have somebody who's actually doing project management. So the you know, you know you the, the roles become fairly predictable as the team grows. It may be a team of three, in which case, you know, you're figuring out what the work is and what the bandwidth is for each person and how to divvy it up, and, and it may shift. You know, I think when you're in a leaderless team, you know, the challenge is a little trickier simply because I may think I'm the best coder when, in fact, you know, I'm, I'm for shift. And so it's really being able to have, this gets into the how do we work together, kind of that candid conversation about saying, love your coding, but it's not going to be the best here. Mm-hmm. And so not to be like over negative here, but when you're a member of the team and you disagree with either the direction or if somebody, if you're like, Ooh, Jimmy over there, I I don't like where he's going with what he's working on, but you don't want dissent in the ranks because we're all working together. Talk to us a little bit about dissent on a team that's healthy. Yeah. yeah. So I would, I would argue that any team that's good, that's healthy probably has dissent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think if you if you have started with a team that's uh, reasonably diverse, 
you are much more likely to get dissent than you are a team that's very homogenous. So if it's all a bunch of you know white guys who went to, I don't know, UT Austin to pick on those of you in Texas, mm-hmm. you, you're probably going to have a different sort of perspective than if it's a fairly diverse team. So one of the things that uh, I do when I do uh, team startups, you know, that fourth step, so destination, milestones, roles, is, you know, how we want to work together. And so if I'm uh, facilitating that, and I get brought in to do that all the time, one of the obvious things is, okay, now how are we going to handle disagreements? You know, how are we actually going to do that? Because if you you do a fair amount of uh, team facilitation, there are some things that are predictable. You know, uh, people get annoyed with each other. So figuring out how you want to do that proscriptively is a lot better than letting it surface. You know, you just you just know it's going to happen. I mean, a good example is, you know, a slip deadline. If, mm-hmm. if a deadline slipped, what do you do? And, and frequently with the teams that I work with, it's, you know, when you know the deadline's going to slip, raise your hand and say, it's going to slip. I don't want to hear it. Know, hear it afterwards. There are a variety of things. Uh, some of it's just kind of hygiene maintenance, like how do we respond on emails? You know, what happens when an investor calls? Um, how do we lay out response? You know, all those things. Those are things that are pretty, pretty standard with most teams. You want dissent. Uh, you know, you want constructive dissent. You know, I actually like teams early on to be a little bumpy. Uh, because that's a way of working out those kinks before things get a little bit more serious. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a muscle. You know, you don't want things to, to uh, be a disaster, but bumps are good. So in moving the team along, what do you suggest as the way to, to kind of get it going off the ground? So part of the way to think about that is really, so once you've got kind of goal clarification, You've got a commitment to do certain things. You, you kind of go into execution mode. I mean, people tend to have a series of tasks or activities that are connected to their role. So, again, using the metaphor of the road trip, if I'm driving, I'm driving. Mm-hmm. So, the, you know, the, the getting off the ground is, am I driving the car and those types of things? So, typically with teams, there tend to be what I think of as sort of project plans. What are, we, what are we doing? Who's doing it? What are the deadlines? What are the resources needed? And then the function of the team collaboratively is to, to monitor that. Uh, but, the, but the doing should flow out of purpose, milestones, roles, um, so that people have an idea of what they're responsible for. And how often do you feel like teams should have regular check-ins? Uh, so it depends. I think there are teams that uh, benefit that are in really dynamic situations, probably daily check-ins, you know, and, uh, you know, I've got uh, groups that work with what I call virtual water coolers. They're on a call every day, just to talk about what's going on. Um, I think as teams get more established and the workflow tends to stretch out, that's, that may be a little excessive. And so it may, you know, lengthen out to maybe every two, three days, maybe weekly, um, I can't think of any good teams in today's environment that probably should go longer than two weeks. I mean, you know, stuff moves quickly. And uh, the other issue that's going to happen at some point, uh, and I think Liz or Kat, you alluded to it earlier, is you're probably going to add more people to the team. 
Mm-hmm. So that team of three is going to become a team of five. And, you know, one of the kind of the imperatives with teams is you got to figure out how to integrate that new person or new persons. So every time somebody gets added, it's really a case of reload. You know, they need to be reoriented. You know, you don't want that team member feeling like you just walked in the middle of the movie. So it's really covering old ground, covering roles, new roles. One of the issues sometimes with teams is that if I have been added to the team and Liz, let's say you used to do the blogging, people think of you as the blogger. Mm-hmm. That's the role you did do. So constantly revisiting those things is just important uh, along the way. But once the team is kind of up and running, the clarity of mission, understand resources, all that stuff, it's about it's about execution. It's mm-hmm. about moving forward. And it's more likely than not about countering uh, obstacles and figuring out how to solve them. Mm-hmm. I love that you brought you brought up onboarding because I think onboarding is not only important in bringing someone into a company, but also bringing someone into a team. And I read, a, I think it was a tweet about if someone leaves in 45 days, it's recruiting's fault and I couldn't help no, myself, but say, no, no, actually recruiting finished when they signed on the dotted line. You screwed up in onboarding. That's management and whomever's in charge of that. One of the things that, that, that always surprises me is and this gets to onboarding and orientation, mm-hmm. is how little people know about each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to work with uh, one of the big uh, regional AT&T teams. And these are people that were formerly referred to as bellheads. You know, the average mm-hmm. tenure of the group, and this was uh, on the West Coast, was probably average tenure was about 15 years. Mm-hmm. And so one of the exercises that I did early on, I, it was kind of in a fireside setting is, Where'd you come from and how'd you get here? And what was surprising is, again, these people had worked around each other for a long time, how little they knew of each other's background and story. And if you don't know, if I don't know, for example, that Kat can run a broadcast studio, for example, if I have an occasion where I need that resource, I'm missing something. And so it's when that person, that new person comes in, it's really about not just familiarizing themselves with the organization, but making sure people are familiar with them as well. What are the skills and abilities and interests and stuff they bring? Um, you know, they, you know, part of what makes good teams work is not necessarily the come by us stuff, but it really is that sense of belonging, the sense of I understand what other people bring to the party and, and what's expected of me. That's your point. That's, that's orientation. That's onboarding. And I think if, if you know a little bit about someone, you're apt to be a little more, have a little more empathy toward them if they're going through a challenge. And that, I think that empathy is a, is, is a part of strong teams. Strong teams have people who, are, who, who know how to relate and who have empathy toward each other. Sure. I think it's empathy. I, you know, I think it's also things, I mean, it's, it's, it's as simple as having rapport. Mm-hmm. Um, there's good research on, on rapport. which basically is all the little things that, you know, I mean, you know, you think it's the big stuff like, you know, uh, do you go to church or synagogue on Sundays or that stuff? Little stuff like you grew up in San Clemente. I lived in Dana Point Mm -hmm. or you like the color red. I like the color red or, you know, gee, uh, you know, you like gardening on the weekends. I like gardening. That is fairly in the grand scheme of things, pretty superficial stuff. And yet the research is pretty clear that 
when people know those common things about them, uh, they have rapport. And to your point, uh, Kat, they actually are going to be a lot more empathetic with each other. So part of the work when I do team startup is how do you surface that stuff in a way that's a little bit less corny than what's your favorite animal and why is it? You know, mm-hmm. there are there are simpler, more elegant ways to do it that doesn't feel like it's been hashed over 47 times. And I think you can take that to the bigger picture. Like I said to our elementary school principal once, I'm like, you should have a resource list of everybody at the school who knows how to do website work. Because oh, yeah. website work and we have one volunteer and they're not able to do it right now. We probably have 10 other people in this thousand kids school. There's probably 10 other parents that could do it with their eyes closed. Sure. But you don't know who you have in your community that would want to help. And so if we all, if in a company, in a community, in any kind of environment, we know the skill sets we have, we can utilize them better. You know, some of it's going to be self-volunteering. You know, I know I do web work, but mm-hmm. some of it's going to be reminding folks. Yeah. And so, um, you know, one of the things we did at my old shop is when a new employee, although we're talking about team, when a new employee came on board, you know, there was a list of the typical things. You know, Liz has got her MD from blah, 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 blah. She has a residency here. But it was also stuff like, you know, she's got two kids. These are the ages. She likes to do this. All those little things. Uh, I was actually in a searchable database. So if I was looking for somebody who did, said, oh, I do web work, you know, I could find it. And so it's figuring out how to surface that and then make sure it's distributed and shared and and, uh, becomes a resource tool. And it spreads the work around because if you only know of one person who does web work, then they're going to get all of it. If you know of 10, you can distribute it a little bit better if you're in a larger community or team. And you were you, you were talking earlier, Liz, about you know that, that team of three or that team of four. Yeah. Part of what's important to know is kind of their, uh, their backstory because as things come up, uh, it becomes an advantage to know that uh, you may know things that aren't related at all to your current role um, because it's going to be necessary. So, And that's part of the communication, wouldn't you say, in terms of information sharing? It's communication, but I think it requires a prompt. Uh, It requires somebody to say, you know, what about, you know, what's your experience? You know, and sometimes, sometimes it's the strangest stuff. If you can surface it, you can, you can access it. So Mike, other than the deliverables being complete, right? The milestones being complete. How do you know when a team is done? A team's work is done. So I think you've got two types of teams. You've got a team that's going to be ongoing. So I think of frequently in some organizations, you know, leadership teams. They are a team by interdependence, mm-hmm. but th- their work is kind of never done. Mm-hmm. You've also got, you know, I think of project teams where they're going to run hard on a project they're going to have a deliverable and then once that deliverable is done you know they may well disband or some of the team may disband um, i think one of the things that's important for you know just about everybody but uh, teams in particular is some sense of accomplishment and celebration i mean you know there's an advantage to reflection about what you've done so you actually kind of store it up in memory so you you can do other great things after that. So for those teams, it's really a matter of, you know, it's it's dismissal, it's disbanding. And again, when I think of a lot of the sports teams at any level, they are they are seldom the same. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, there is an end of season, and next season, you know, the players may look different. In fact, frequently will look will look different. And so it's celebration. I think the other part for sort of ongoing teams is uh, being able to create opportunities for reflection and renewal. Um, you know, I was talking to a client earlier today, and it's an organization that's been highly successful, highly driven, and uh, people are feeling a little burnt. They're just they're just tired. And so, how do you create opportunities if you? want to sustain that sort of success for some pause, some reflection, some downtime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so important. Yeah, yeah. And it's so important to sense that burnout and do something about it versus just keep running. Right, especially in startup environments, right? Startup environments have a very special energy to them where, you know, there's an energizer bunny kind of component where you're running, running, running all the time. And if you don't slow down, at some point, that that's that's not sustainable. Yeah, and, and, you know, again, I think uh, you know when I think about uh, teams I've worked with, part of it is what's the what's the time frame? This is a hey, we're going to work hard six months, or is this a six year project? Mm-hmm. Because the stuff that's sustainable in six months is not sustainable over six years, mm-hmm. and so it's figuring out how you're going to take time off either as a team or as individuals. Sometimes it's just a matter of rotating some folks in if you have that luxury, but sometimes you've got to figure out how to do that because you, you, you will burn out. And there's, you know, lots of good research on individual performance that, you know, we, you know, we think we're productive at hour 14, but you know, the research is not so much, you know, for most people it's about 10 hours and then there's a big drop off. So you can work harder or longer. You're just not very productive. (laughs) So too. And I love your sports analogy because I think of the baseball team at the beginning of the season looks one way and then some people go down to the minors and others come up and, and someone gets injured. So then there's a trade. And I think there's something to be said for when your job on the team is done, even if the project isn't done, you don't have to go to the weekly meetings or what have you, but you're still part of the celebration at the end because you're part of mm-hmm. getting them there. Sure. Um, but allowing people to exit stage right if they're done for whatever reason they're done and acknowledge their part in the process. Yeah. The, 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 what popped in my head is that actually it's a client I'm having lunch with tomorrow who her, her skill, she's a physician, but her skill is really early stage teams. She's got the ability to go across many boundaries. She's got kind of a well-honed knack at, at spotting things her phase out time is kind of when an organization gets to about 15, 20 people because the skills that advantage her early on, you know, aren't, aren't as well appreciated when people wonder why she's in their sandbox. So, mm-hmm. so part of it is when you architect a team is figuring out how, what are we going to do with the resources we have? And, you know, the person who is very good at multitasking, for example, may not be the best of any of those tasks. So early on, they're great. You want them on the team. Longer term, they're great, but they're probably better in a different situation. So true. Hmm. So we mentioned a celebration at the end, but how do you suggest closing down a team or kind of disbanding a team? Yeah, I'm I'm all for ceremony. Uh, (laughs) And so, I mean, the obvious things are things like team lunch, team dinner, Mm-hmm. You know, I've been part of teams that did a team retreat. 
um, as a way to kind of reflect and move on. It could be something as simple as some sort of, you know, affirmation ceremony where people end up in a meeting thanking folks for their contributions and what they appreciate. But it, 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 marks, it marks a transition. And, you know, it's an end, but that means that, you know, the, the cliched line is there's a new beginning someplace. Mm-hmm. But I think that's helpful. It, it does bring closure. For sure. Awesome. Why don't we talk about executive teams for a minute? So let's say I'm thinking about joining a company. What should I be looking for in an executive team? Ooh, I think I wrote about this today. Oh, <laughs> so, uh, She's watching. Pod, uh, no, I think, um, so, you know, most executive teams, uh, we're going to have a CEO. Um, and so part of it is going to be, you know, what's the boss like? Mm-hmm. Who's working for her or him? Um, what are their backgrounds? The piece I just mentioned, um, I had lunch with uh, Patricia Hansen, who you both know, mm-hmm. and uh, last week, and she's at Twitter. And th- there were several things that caught me. One is just how diverse you know the workforce was, which was not unexpected. But if you look at the at the bios of the executive team, um, and I happen to know the CFO Ned Siegel, they don't all come from the same place. And they don't look the same and their backgrounds are different. And, you know, Twitter is unusual because, uh, you know, Jack Dorsey is actually splitting the CEO hat between Twitter and Square. So he's not even a full-time CEO at one company. But so I would look for um, diversity on the exec team. That would be one quick thing. I'd look for related experience. I'd like somebody who's worked with successful companies and, probably some companies that weren't so successful. I think that builds a perseverance uh, muscle. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are, those are the types of things I like for. You know, I, I, I love looking at a LinkedIn profile and then doing a little research on people uh, to see what's, what, what's their backstory. In terms of like culture and que- things like that. So I, I agree with you. It's like, who are these people? Let me, let me, what are some things they write? What, what do they do on Twitter? But in terms of questions that you would recommend people ask to make sure that they're joining a team that's going to be right for them, what is some advice you have there? You know, it is tricky. You know, as we all know, if you ask a hypothetical question, what's your idea, mm-hmm. idea of culture, you get a hypothetical answer. And so Mm-hmm. What I want to find out from them is some stories about teams they've worked on that worked for them, teams where they struggled and what that was about. Uh, I'm trying to find out, because again, going back to this dinner party metaphor, you know, where where are they going to fit in this constellation of the team? You know, just like I don't want everybody on the team to be extroverted, I'd like introverts as well. I don't want everybody to be the driver driver. I want somebody who's going to be a little bit more uh, uh, contemplative. And so it's finding out their experience with teams, you know, what people say is, oh, I love teams and they're great and all that stuff. Um, But I want to, you know, I mean, this is kind of behavioral interviewing 101. I want to dig back and hear their experiences because I guarantee not, not all teams have been great. And I would guess many teams have been awful. And I want to hear that experience. And I want to hear the learnings that they've had. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to, you know, if I have a bias, the bias is somebody who's a little, um, 
it's got a little EQ about how they behave and, and how they work on teams. It's not always necessary, but it's frequently helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, it, you know, again, I'm beating a, a dead cat, but, you know, this dinner party metaphor is a good one because, you know, the person who does nothing but wants to talk about themselves is entertaining for a limited period of time at a dinner party. You know, I want somebody who's curious about others, mm-hmm. different backgrounds, all those sorts of things. Well, and I think to keep the metaphor going, because why not keep beating the cat? Um, (laughs) But we've all been at dinner parties that someone put together thinking that that this was going to be a great evening, and it bombed because for some reason the magic gel didn't happen. And so if I'm looking at an executive leader, I kind of want to hear the story about the bad dinner party as well Mm -hmm. as the good dinner party and what they would have done differently. Yeah, yeah. And some of it's just how how they uh, how they thought about it at the time, mm-hmm. uh, but it's uh, you know there's an art to it. I mean, I uh, had I had lunch with my old CEO uh, Tuesday, and you know one of the things is you know even though I think I'm really good at assessment and I think he's good, you know you make mistakes. You know the person that was really good two jobs ago you know, they, maybe they're not the same person. And so you, you will make those mistakes, but it's uh, better to see if you can uh, remediate it. Is there a different role for the person that's a better fit? Or is this a case of, you know, this is just not going to work out mm-hmm. um, and, and moving on? Um, you know, when I, you know, cap back to your question on what do you look for? I, I look for people who can talk about that stuff mm-hmm. because, you know, somebody, you know, I've talked to, um, it's actually fathers who talk about child rearing and, you know, they talk about how easy it was and blah, 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 blah. And I'm thinking you haven't changed a diaper in your life, you know, yeah. because you would expect some predictable experiences from building teams and working with executive teams. And if people can't talk about those experiences, it makes me wonder where they absent and, and they're just not aware of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everyone should have hindsight and that's what makes us stronger. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. What, what did you learn from the situation? You know, I'm a huge fan of uh, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky's work and uh, Kahneman's got his book, Thinking Fast and Slow. And uh, one of the concepts he's borrowed from somebody else is this whole idea of a pre-mortem. You know, if this is going to go badly, what's going to make it go badly mm-hmm. and so that you think about those things and, and when you're looking at candidate assessment for an exec team if this guy's going to bomb what what's it going to be about and so trying to get under the hood on that so that you understand it and it's you know there, you know there's a there's a degree of luck i mean there's no <laughs> doubt about it but i think you can i think you can minimize it i, I really do cat anything else I think I think we've covered most of the territory, but we there may be a question or two that one of our listeners have that uh, we would be happy to address in the future, Absolutely. if we would be lucky enough to get Mike to come back. Yeah, and the one one the one plug that I would give to folks interested in teams is uh, there's an old book uh, by John Katzenbach called The Wisdom of Teams. It is if you wanted to have a you know a primer on how to think about teams, I would start with the Katzenbach work. It's good. It's Great. quite good. Thank you. Thank you so much. Mike, how can people find you? 
They can find me on my BackWest uh, website. So it's B-A-C-K-W-S-D, backwest.com. Um, I'm hard not to find. Uh, I mean, email, there's a phone number. But again, my work is with execs, with leadership teams, team building sort of stuff. And then uh, I do a fair amount of work with early stage teams. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, Thanks for having me. It was great. I'd love to come back sometime. Great. Awesome. Thank you, Mike. We'll talk to you soon. Yes. Bye-bye. This is Real Job Talk, a podcast about jobs, careers, and what's not said at the water cooler. Our website with all Real Job Talk related information is realjobtalk.com. We'd love to hear from you. Please send us your questions, topics you'd like to talk about, and Real Job Talk stories. And you may find them featured on a future episode. Use the website or email us at realjobtalk at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Real Job Talk. And on Instagram and Facebook at Real Job Talk Show. My name is Kat Troyer. You can find me on Twitter at Daily Cat, And on LinkedIn, you can find me via Kathleen Nelson Troyer. And I'm Liz Bronson. On Twitter, I'm at Liz Beeks and Salt. And on LinkedIn, I'm Liz Bronson. Real Job Talk is a Tech Reckoning production. Our producer is John Mark Troyer. Our graphic artists are Lexi and Zachary Bronson. And we're here by the water cooler waiting to talk with you. <laughs>